Well, good morning. If we haven't met, my name is Brandon. It is good to be home at 608 Aurora. Uh, we have talked plenty about that. I will not belabor it except to say that I could not be uh, more excited. As he said, we're in a, or starting a series in John, and so let's, um, let's get started. Uh, there are uh, in life these, uh, these moments where you are just simply captivated by something, where you are absolutely mesmerized by what's happening in front of you. And, and not all of these moments are good moments, right? So uh, back there right now is my 20-month-old daughter, Amelia. Uh, Amelia, in the last couple of months, has started this thing where when she gets angry, her form of temper tantrum is to drop down on the ground, spread her legs, and start spitting right between her legs. And then, and then look up at you and go, what are you going to do now? Right? And I'm, I'm going to show you what I'm going to do, little girl. Uh, I'm going to do nothing. You're 20 months old. I've got nowhere to go from here. Right? So not all moments are good moments, right? But some moments in life are, uh, are, are just pure beauty. Right? So it could be back in the day, MJ on the court. Right, end of the game, closing it out, you know who's going to get the ball, you know you can't stop him, game's over. MJ on the court. It can be Adele singing hello. And I'm tempted to sing hello for you, but I'm not going to do it. Even though I want to do it, hello, I'm not going to sing it for you, but I would sing it for you if you ask me in private. It can be Adele. I may have recorded that live in New York and watched it three or four times. Um, but there's one moment in my life that stands out above the rest. It was May 21st, 2005. I was standing in a church building like this, standing on a stage like this, when in the back of the sanctuary, the doors opened and out came my bride. And I had never, I had never seen such beauty. I was so captivated by her beauty that I couldn't even cry. And I was supposed to cry. You know how I know that? She told me ahead of time. <laughs> when I come out, I want to see you cry. You're supposed to cry when I walk out. I didn't cry. It was a letdown. We went to counseling for it. It was a good, it was a good first year. <laughs> when my bride walked out, I, I was so mesmerized by her beauty. And those doors opened that I was absolutely speechless. I couldn't cry, and I certainly couldn't look away. And here's what John is doing in the Gospel of John. John is opening the doors so that Jesus can walk through, so that we can see Him in all of His beauty, so that we might be so captivated together by Jesus that we would never look away. And so let's get started. Let's Go with John, open up, and look at Jesus together. In the beginning, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. When John opens the doors, when John pulls back the doors and we see Jesus, he starts out with a absolute declaration of the divinity of Jesus. He quotes John 1, I mean Genesis 1, he draws on the Old Testament to say Jesus is the creator of all things. This is John declaring from the word go that Jesus equals God is true. This is his opening declaration. This is 
above and beyond all things that John wants you to know, when those doors open, he wants you to know this, that Jesus equals God is true. That's where he begins. That's where he opens his letter. But here's a, here's a question. It's always been a baffling question. Not always, but you know, I'm 37, so for seven years it's been a baffling question. Why, why the Word? Right? It, it would have been easier, would it not, to just say, um, in the beginning, Jesus. Right? Would, would that not have been easier? Certainly it would have been easier, but here's what's happening. John has two audiences in mind. He has a Jewish audience in mind, and he has a Greek audience in mind. And in both audiences, the word, the, the word that's translated word here, has a meaningful connotation. Right? So to the Jew... Uh, the word was uh, drawing out of the Old Testament this, this self-disclosure of God. God's revelation of himself. But then to the Greek, drawing on philosophy, the word had, had, a, had, a, had a meaning as well. And it was this impersonal logic, right? So if there's a God, the God is uh, impersonal, logical, orderly, distant. That was how they viewed the word within their philosophical grid. And what John is doing is he's entering into both worlds um, at the same time, and he's saying that God has revealed himself, but he didn't reveal himself as an impersonal, logical force. He's revealed himself in a highly relational man, in the man Jesus. And so now let's look at what he says about this man, Jesus. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. All right, this light versus dark. This is um, a, another declaration of the divinity of Jesus, uh, another statement that Jesus equals God is true, that, that throughout the Scriptures, if you trace um, light and dark, light stands for represents the presence of God. Darkness would represent the absence of God. But then it's going to go a little bit farther, right? So if we were to, if we trace the scriptures, right now we're in John, right? So we've got Old Testament, the Bible before Jesus. We've got the Gospels about Jesus, the life of Jesus. And then we've got the New Testament, life and light of Jesus, all things that, that come with living out this faith. And we, if we trace forward from Jesus on, here's what we're going to find. We're going to find light, dark, as a central analogy for the Christian life. It is a central analogy for the Christian life, that the Christian life is wired to be, meant to be, life lived in the light, and we're to avoid what is dark. Let me read it to you, Ephesians 5. This is just one of, I'm tempted to say hundreds of places I could have gone to. Uh, that's probably an overstatement. But one out of many, many places I could have gone to. Ephesians 5, um, 8, and then verses 11 through 13, it says, For at one time you were darkness. But now you are the light of the world. Walk as children of light. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But where anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. So when we trace this light-dark analogy that, that John started with by describing who Jesus is, when we trace it forward, and we see that our life is meant to be marked by life in the light versus life in the dark. We need to know what does life in the dark look like? What does life in the light look like? And Ephesians 5 gives us the answer. And here's the answer. Life in the dark looks like life in secret. Life in the dark looks like life in secret. 
It means that you have a public life and you have a private life. It means that, that you have this, uh, this public front, this public face that you hold up before everyone to see, but then you've got the private you, the real you. And if that's not the marker of your life, it means that you have areas of your life. And that there are these pieces of us that we live in secret. And, and here's, the, here's the reality. Who, who does this describe? When we say you have areas of your life that you live in secret, who does that describe? Answer, every one of us. Every single one of us in this room, myself included. There is no one in this room, not you, not me, who would not be terrified to have a GoPro camera on their forehead at all times. Right? One person in this room, we said, we need a volunteer. We want to see real life. We want to see the real you. We want you to put a camera on your head, pretend like it's not there. We're going to play a video next week. Zero volunteers. Life in the dark looks like life in secret. Life in the light looks like taking the areas of our life that are secret and making them unsecret. Looks like taking life in the dark and making it life in the light, making the things that are invisible to the world around us and making them visible to the world around us. It means that we don't have a private life and a public life. It means that we were to take all areas of our life that are in the dark and bring them out into the light. That's what it means to live life in the light. And we, we, we do this. How? How? How do we do this? God's opened up and said we do this inside neighborhood parishes. This is where we live life together, where by the grace of God, we, we take the parts of our life. And listen, it is, it is always scary to walk down the dangerous road of transparency. Always. There has never been a day in my life there's never been a day in my life where I thought, man, I'm really ashamed of this. I need to tell some people about it. That sounds fun. Never. But life in the light looks like taking the things that are dark, things that we would be ashamed for other people to see and know about us, and saying, here they are. This is me. Take it or, not take it or leave it. This is me. Help me become more like Christ. That's life in the light versus life in the dark. And John knows, though, that for this to be the marker of your life, for this to be what your life looks like, there's a step one. So let's keep, um, let's keep reading. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. Side note, this is a different John, right? This is not like somebody saying, uh, and Brandon said, uh, it's, a, it's a different John, John the Baptist, all right? There was a man named John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Listen to that. He came. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. I'm going to pause. Let me say, let me say this. We dream massive dreams at Sojourn about what God is going to do in the Heights and in Houston. And sometimes when we talk about them, when we say things like maybe one day that there would be a neighborhood parish in walking distance of every man, woman, and child in the Heights 
and in Houston, it can sound ridiculous. Let me tell you why we don't care. What did it just say? What, what did it say that John the Baptist wanted? That all might believe. That all might believe. How dare us dream less than John the Baptist? Back to the sermon. That all might believe through him. Now if I, if I asked or you asked the average Houstonian, maybe some of us in here, said, hey, are, are you a Christian? Most people... Or not, maybe not most, but a lot of people would say yes. But if we drilled down a little bit deeper, if we drilled in a little bit deeper to that, uh, we would find out that what, what a lot of people mean by that is that they mean, I believe true things about Jesus. Right? I believe true things. I believe um, X, Y, Z, and all things are true about Jesus. But for John, um, but for John to believe was something different. It meant going farther, right? So what, what if we... If we rolled back to verse 4, what did verse 4 say? It said, in him was life, and his life was the light of men. That knowing true things about Jesus is not the same thing as having the life of Jesus in you, affecting you, shaping you. Right? I know a lot of true things about LeBron James. Overrated, for example. <laughs> but I don't know LeBron James. Knowing true things about Jesus is not the same thing as knowing Jesus. This is also true of people in John's day, and it's actually why he wrote the letter. John 20, 30 and 31 says this. This is John's banner that he waves over the gospel of John. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. True things. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Believing in Jesus is not less than believing true things. That's where you start, but then it goes farther. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. The driving cry of John is that all might believe, and that by believing, you have life in his name, that his life becomes yours, yours becomes consumed by him. This is the banner that he waves, and this is why every week um, we stand up during uh, the announcements, and we say, or during the welcome, and we say that we we believe that our faith is meant to be more than cognitively understood, but it's meant to be experienced and shape us and transform us because it's not just believing true things about Jesus. It's having His life in us change us, transform us to the degree that our life might be marked by life in the light. And so the invitation of John is to believe and to believe in a way that changes us at our deepest deepest levels and the question is and I think it's a fair question is why do we find it so hard to believe and I, I'm not saying why do you find it hard to to if you're not a follower of Jesus why do you find it hard to become a follower of Jesus I'm, this is for all of us like why is it that we find consistent faithful belief a hard thing why is it that our faith tends to waver up down in out I think John gives us some clues and the clues are found um, in the audience. Not you, John's audience. Maybe in you too. We'll find out here in a minute. Verse 9. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. 
But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is what's on the table. This is what you have. This is in Christ. This is what you have, that you were not born of the will of man or the flesh, but of God entering into your life, giving you the life of Christ in your life. And so why is it that we find belief, consistent, faithful belief, rich, soul-satisfying belief, difficult? Well, remember the two audiences that Paul was talking to. And by Paul, I mean John. Verse 10, the world, right? So the world is, is all people generally, but he has a specific audience. Who were they? The Greeks, right? The Greeks. And then his own people. His own people, this is the Jews. That's out of verse 11. So the world generally, but primary audience, the Greeks, and then Jews, his own people. All right. So three reasons, probably more, but let me give you three reasons that we can we could probably pretty easily show you out of the life of the Greeks and then out of the Jewish people about why belief was difficult for them. Reason one, uh, that God was distant. Right. This is the Greeks. Right. We have the impersonal logos, the word that that God is logic, philosophical. Uh, philosophy landing on us. So God is distant. If God's there, he's a distant God. Reason two, uh, suffering. Suffering. So uh, Israel as a nation was fully aware of, of what life had been like for them the last few hundred years, and it wasn't pretty. This is no different than us, right? We look at our life, we look at the world around us from cancer to ISIS to you name it. And we look at the world and go, man, if, if there's a good God and God loves us, how in the world could the world be like this? Suffering is a um, real uh, uh, barrier to belief. And then the third reason, I think uh, the biggest reason, is that we know ourselves. All right, so the Jews, we can look back at the latter part of the Scriptures and we can start to get some glimpses. Start to get some glimpses that there was a growing self-awareness. They were aware of their idolatry, their repeated idolatry, where they ran from the Lord. I think this is the biggest barrier to belief. That I know who I am. I know, who I, I know what my week was like last week. I know what I did on New Year's Eve. I know uh, what my college years were like. I, I know about that abortion that no one knows about. I've been divorced. I, I feel like I... I wear this banner over my chest that says this is who I am and if there's a God and He loves people, certainly it's not for someone that wears this banner. And here's what I think is just so gracious and beautiful and loving by John is that he is going to show us how Jesus addresses all three. Let's keep reading. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after Me ranks before Me, because He was before Me. This is John saying, Hey, listen, God is not distant. God is a lot of things. Distant isn't one of them. He has come in the form of a man and dwelt among us. 
tabernacled among us. Packaged in human flesh, eternal, divine glory. He has come near. He is not distant. He is not far. He is near and He has come for you. Let's keep going. Verse 16. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. How? From His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. How? Now, John, language thing. Received. Past tense, present tense, full, future tense. I'll answer. Past tense. This is John writing after Jesus Looking back and saying, through Him we received grace upon grace upon grace. How? Let me show you. Because the answer to that question is going to take us right to the heart of suffering. This is Jesus on the cross. Matthew 24, 75. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So you hear that? Sixth hour to the ninth hour. Darkness covering the land. You know what time of day this is? Noon to three. Noon to three. This is not, it was midnight, nobody could see anybody. This is a supernatural divine event where at the moment of the cross there was a declaration that there was such suffering by the Son of God that darkness eclipsed the light of God. Listen. This is Jesus experiencing absence of divine presence in the moment of the cross when our sin was being poured out on Him. That's why the next thing He said was, my God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? This is the absolute hell of the cross. You know what this means? This this means that while, while I can't stand here and tell you the why of all of your suffering, I can tell you this. It's not because God doesn't care. I can tell you without reservation that I can't tell you why everything happens. But I can tell you that suffering happens not because God doesn't care, because God is willing to come into the world as a man and suffer at the hands of men the kind of suffering that you and I have never nor will ever experience. I can tell you it's not because he doesn't care. Let's keep going. The last reason, verse 17. And this one, verse 17, the last reason why we don't believe that we know ourselves. For the law was given through Moses. The grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So Moses, Old Testament figure, the law, think Ten Commandments. The law coming through Moses. Let me tell you the best analogy that I've ever heard. I've given it to you guys before about, about the role of the law. The law is like an MRI machine. right? When you go in for MRI, you sit under the scan. The scan reveals a problem. It doesn't heal the problem. It just reveals the problem. And let me tell you what this means. The law reveals you in a way that you could never know you. We can deceive ourselves. We can't deceive the law. 
the law reveals us for who we really are. Which means, which means that the God of the law, Jesus, knows you better than you know yourself. He knows you better than you know yourself and He was willing to come and die for you anyway. Which means, which means you can stop hiding from your past. You can stop sitting here wearing the banner that no one else sees except you and running from God saying that if there's a God, He would never forgive me. The law says He knows you. And Jesus says, I died for you anyway. Full of grace and truth. Grace and truth, if you don't know, not if you don't know, it is Old Testament shorthand for unconditional love. He knows you and loves you unconditionally in Christ. He knows you better than you know you. And was willing to come and die for you. So you don't have to hide from your past, but also, you know what? You don't have to hide from your present either. You don't have to hide from who you are right now. So when we do the confession of sin, and we say, hey, take a moment to sit and silently confess your sin, you know what you don't have to do? You don't have to sit there and stare at the ground, waiting for it to be over. Sitting right there this morning, here the last couple of weeks, anger has started to flare up in me. I mean, that's why I don't want the GoPro camera on me. Snap at my kids. I don't want y'all seeing that. Do I fire that dude? And I got to sit there this morning and go, Lord, I don't know what's happening. I do know I need your grace. I do know that I've been quick to anger. And I need you to help me get into the undercurrent of my life. I don't have to sit there and stare at the floor because I'm not hiding from my presence anymore. It also means that I'm not bound, I'm not consumed with what other people think of me. I have the unconditional love of the Father through Christ. And so I'm not consumed. I don't live and die by your acceptance or your rejection. And if this together can mark us as a church, if this can mark us, this um, I'm not running from my past or my present, I'm not consumed by what other people think of me, we have a chance together to live out verse 18. And to see this reality become our reality. That no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made Him known. That Jesus was sent into the world to make God visible. And then John 17 is going to say that as you sent me, I sent them. That we can now have the purpose of Christ. That we can be sent as Christ was. That for Jesus to make the Father visible, now we can go out and make the Son visible. And so there's a question, how? How as a church, how as a body, how as a people, how as a community, do we go about making Jesus visible? Let me tell you a fear I have. This is maybe a sojourn family fear right here. I am giddy that we are back in this building, even with just the red lights right now. I am, I mean, I could not be more excited to be back in this building right now. Let me tell you one of the fears I have is that we'll start to subtly slip in thinking this building is how we make Christ visible in the neighborhood. It's, I'm, I love it. But you know what this building is made of? Brick. Concrete. Fake wood. We make Jesus visible as a people, not through a building. And 1 John, 1 John is going to say, hey, listen, um, if we say that we're in the dark, we're lying to one another. 
We're lying to one another. We're saying, hey, come, come walk in the light. Come live in the light. Come have fellowship with one another. And so when we say, hey, get into a neighborhood parish, when we plead with you, hey, get into a neighborhood parish, live life with one another, take the deep, difficult, dark parts of your life, bring them into the light with one another, we're saying to you, hey, hey, go out and make Jesus visible. That's what we're saying. So we say, hey, listen, what if, what if, what if one day, what if one day we just, by the grace of God, there was a neighborhood parish in walking distance of every man, woman, and child that they wouldn't have to come into this building to come find Jesus, but we would go be the church out among them. When we say, what if we did that? Here's what we're saying. We're saying, what if we went out into the neighborhood and made Jesus visible? This week, I have a neighbor. There's a parish that gathers um, a block and a half from my house, a neighbor in between us that we both know. I saw this lady in Boomtown, great coffee, and she said, hey, they, do they have a, um, what, what do you call it, a church thing? Is it, do you call it a church? Yes, we call it a church. Do they have a thing on Sundays at their house? Uh, yeah, they do. Okay, well, I just thought they had a lot of friends. Oh, they do have a lot of friends. Let me tell you why they have a lot of friends. That is making Jesus visible out in the neighborhood. Why? Why is it this burning drive in us to see neighborhood parishes and walking distance of every man, woman, child inside of our neighborhood and one day inside of our city that we might come along, John the Baptist and John the author, and say, may all believe that by us making Christ visible, may all believe all of the heights and all of Houston may one day may one day our neighbors our neighbors have a neighborhood parish that is in such close proximity that the doors just stay open and Jesus stays visible let's pray Father we love you we bless you we thank you for the men and the women in this room right now. We, we thank you that we uh, can come together and that we can stop hiding from one another, that we can come together, we can stop hiding from you, that we can sit under the weight of your word, under the weight of your scriptures. And that we might be willing to be known by one another. And then I pray I pray with John, I pray that one day, one day, all might believe. And I pray that, that you would enable us to repent from ever not dreaming what John the Baptist dreams. That all might believe. May that be the driving desire of our hearts and souls. We know that uh, that takes a real work of grace. And I also pray for my friend in this room, uh, anybody who's in here who would say, I, I wear a banner and no one knows it. And I fight to take the banner off, but I can't take it off. I pray that grace would invade your life today. And that you would look and see grace and truth and know that there is an unconditional love from God that's for you because of Christ. We love you and bless you. In Christ's name, amen.